0: There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature.
1: I don't want any of this lover's lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something uptempo. I want something snappy.
2: Riot Girl was a musical movement that showed that feminism could be fun and loud. I'm Jim Dirigatis of WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. Today we look at the legacy of
0: Riot Girl two decades on. And we review new albums by the Fleet Foxes and the Cars. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And now it's time for some music news. I'm doing up here
1: on cloud.
2: A couple of weeks ago here on Sound Opinions, we talked about the news story of Amazon launching its cloud drive digital music storage service. Now, this week, we have Google following hot on Amazon's heels with what it's calling its smart locker storage system, its version of the cloud those words you've heard them before no two ways about it the cloud is going to be the music business story of 2011 somewhere is a digital storage locker that can have your name on it that you can have all of your musical media and soon books and movies as well that you can access anywhere you want at any time Google's version of it, called Music Beta, is going to allow you to store an incredible 20,000 songs. That's twice as big as the Amazon Cloud Drive, and you can access them anywhere you want, at no charge, on your Android phone, on your tablet, on any device you choose. This is... The future of consuming media and the major label industry as it exists is very, very frightened about this. They think that having this digital storage locker with all of your media in it is just going to make it easier to trade files and there's going to be no accountability. The major record labels want only licensed songs to be stored up there. Amazon went ahead with almost no notice to the major labels. Google now is doing the same thing. They're going to let it get sorted out in the courts. Now, Google originally was much more ambitious in what it had been talking about. It wanted to build a music store, much like iTunes or like Amazon. Because of the difficulties with the major labels, they don't have that as a component here yet. Right now, it's just a storage locker. But this fight is going to go on, and it's going to go on for a long time. People in Silicon Valley are said to be comparing the major labels to the bridge troll who's demanding payment to let you cross. A lot of industry observers are saying the major labels may once again be spiting themselves because there's a lot of money potentially on the table here, as there has been with Spotify, that European version of the cloud that's been working very well, that's been trying for two years to set up a licensing system to come into this country. But with two of the biggest entities on the net google and amazon moving a step closer towards the cloud it's getting that much closer toward becoming a reality and the next big thing people are waiting for is apple setting up its version of the cloud
0: One of the big four record companies, Warner Music Group Corporation, the home to some major league artists, is changing hands. A three billion dollar deal. It is being sold to Access Industries Incorporated, a conglomerate controlled by a Russian-born billionaire named Len Blavatnik. As we said, there's only four big-time labels left. Besides Warner, we have Sony, we have Universal and we have EMI. The fact that it's changing hands at this time indicates that there are more changes to come in the music industry. This is the home remember of bands like uh, not only REM, but Neil Young, Van Morrison, Kid Rock, Green Day, the White Stripes, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, not all of those artists necessarily still on the label, but their catalogs are controlled by that label. So there is some value here, not only on the music side, but on the publishing side. The Warner Chapel Publishing House is where the real money is in this empire. And what people are speculating is that now that this Russian company, Access Industries, has bought Warner, the next target is another one of the big four labels, EMI. And that's where people say the real change is going to come. Warner merging with EMI by the end of the year, creating now not a big four, but a big three in the record industry. Mergers usually mean the loss of jobs. Employees will be cut. It could also mean that a number of these artists will be without a home. It remains to be seen. Now, bad news for record labels, they seem to be shrinking fewer and fewer than ever. Not really so. On a more boutique, independent level, we're seeing more labels than ever in some ways. One of the more prominent ones to get started in recent weeks is the one started by Glee's executive music producer, Adam Anders. Now, before you scoff at this, consider that Glee is one of the biggest, most successful franchises in the music industry right now. They've had more than 100 Billboard Top 100 hits in the last couple of years, and Anders is the guy behind that. Now he's starting his own boutique label. The first artist he signed is one Shane Harper, who some of you may recognize as Spencer Walsh, the character on that Disney sitcom, Good Luck, Charlie. He's off to a slow start. 3,000 digital downloads of his first single in the last few weeks, not so hot. But uh, get this, Andrews says, you know what, I'm not in it for short-term game. I'm in it to develop artists over the long haul. Artist development. Now, there's a word you don't hear very often in the record industry anymore, but Adam Andrews, gosh darn it, he says he's going to do it.
3: Walk across the courtyard Towards the library I can hear the insects buzzing the leaves Neath my feet
2: Greg, I know you happen to own almost every recording ever released, but uh, some of us are not quite so fortunate. And for us, the Library of Congress is doing something that, that that is not even short of miraculous. They are about to flip a switch that puts a large chunk of the National Archive of more than 3 million music and spoken word recordings online for public streaming, for free for the first time in history. This is called the uh, National Jukebox Project. I like that name. Mm. And it's being done in conjunction with Sony Music. Now, Sony is said to own more vintage recordings from the history, really, of recorded technology up until the copyright laws of 1972 than the other big record companies. And and it's kind of neat that they're the first company spearheading this. There's a morass, a, a legal mess, that has kept many recordings from the first half century of recorded technology out of print for years because it's such a tangle of copyright confusion. The library, being a library, is is putting this stuff online for us not to download but, but to hear finally. And it's some extraordinary stuff. I mean, you have the speeches of President Teddy Roosevelt, John Philip Sousa, conducting the marches that he wrote, recordings by Enrico Caruso...
1: I'm to be a little bit of a little bit of a little bit of a of a little of a little bit of a
2: Music, historians, and scholars are saying this is nirvana. <laughs> you know, the skies are opening, it's wonderful, and we can't wait for other stuff like this to become available from the other companies. This is another version of the cloud that's one, I think, more geared toward education and cultural edification than profit.
1: We're Bikini kill, and we want revolution! Girls
0: That is double Daria from a band called Bikini Kill. They say we want revolution girl style now. (laughs) This was a manifesto from the early 90s as part of this Riot Girl movement in music and politics. Riot Girl, girl spelled with three R's, no I. Girl. Girl. Uh, Yes, indeed. And we want to take a look at it because it has influenced a lot of music, a lot of messaging that you see out there uh, over the last couple of decades. But it started here in this in this very much DIY movement. I mean, when you think about the Spice Girls appropriating girl power or Avril Lavigne sending these kind of messages out in pop songs, you see these lady fests popping around all over the country or girl rock camps. These are all the legacy of this little movement that started in Washington, D.C. and the Pacific Northwest in the rock underground in the early 90s. It was a radical feminist movement of young women that specifically addressed issues like gender, patriarchy, rape, sexual harassment, domestic abuse in a very explicit and confrontational manner and uh, tied it up with a very confrontational brand of punk rock music. I mean, there was no doubt about what these women were singing about. They were singing to other young women and it empowered them and said, go out in the world and change the way the world works.
2: The movement came and went, but as we said, the legacy has lived on. Greg, there's a new book out charting the history of this movement Girls to the Front, the true story of the Riot Girl Revolution, written by Sarah Marcus. She's a writer and a musician. Sarah, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks so much for having me. Sarah, you focus on Riot Girls' history between the years 1989 and 1994. How would you define the start of this movement?
4: Riot Girl really gets its start in the summer of 1991, in which two things happen. One thing that happens is members of the band Bikini Kill and the band Bratmobile move to Washington, D.C. for a summer where they begin making a zine that is titled Riot Girl mm-hmm. and call a meeting, and the meetings keep happening in D.C. Shortly after the first meeting happens, the bands drive back to Olympia to play at Girl Day at the International Pop Underground Convention in Olympia. So the opening event of this sort of family reunion of the, the indie underground circa 1991 is a night in which every performer has to have significant female input. These two events, the meetings Plus the zines on the one coast and the show on the other coast coalesce this feeling of critical mass of, wow, there's enough energy around using punk rock and DIY as a way to express our anger about sexism, to express our identities as women trying to come up with a liberated way to be women Mm -hmm. in a society that makes that really hard. It all ignited at once. So the, um, the prehistory, 89 to 91, that I cover is just the history basically of Kathleen Hanna. She's working at a domestic violence shelter. She's doing her spoken word. She goes and meets her hero, the writer Kathy Acker, who tells her, well, if you really want people to listen to you, spoken word is not exactly the best way to reach a larger audience, a band. You need to start playing music.
0: Well, it's fascinating how music has become an outlet for this kind of feminism, we saw some of that in, in the late 70s where the scene started to get populated, the punk scene, more democratically. Yes. What was the context for the surge in the late 80s, early 90s? Because obviously stuff was happening in the world that galvanized these young women to feel like they needed a, a stronger, louder voice to get their message out.
4: Well, there's two sides of that, and one is something that you alluded to a little when you talked about how much more democratic punk was in the late 70s than it would be in the decade to follow, in which, you know, this very macho form of hardcore became the dominant aesthetic in punk rock, and it was an aesthetic that was not super welcoming to most women. So you have this going on on the musical side. And then on the political side, what you have is that, In trying to chip away at the successes that the women's liberation movement had in the 60s and 70s, the right wing is really targeting young women. One of the main fronts of the fight over reproductive rights in 1991-92 is the question of young women's reproductive rights and the parental consent laws are being passed across the country. And, um, and even in the, the presidential election in 1992 where George H.W. Bush is fighting for re-election against this challenger, Bill Clinton, the differences between them are even being figured along the lines of their differing opinions as to what teenage girls should be able to do with their bodies. Also in 91, people are starting to wake up to the fact that teenagers are getting infected with HIV because there's inadequate sexual education. So there's this Amazing sense in which the stakes of one's body in adolescence in the early 90s seem just perilously high and the messages are completely nonsensical. You can't make sense of how you're actually supposed to be because the ideals of feminism are clashing so dramatically with the enduring realities of limitations on what young women can do, how they can behave, continued stratified gender roles about what is a man, what is a woman. It's a big clash, and I think that Riot Girl, in its screams and its messiness, was really expressing the frustration of trying to craft an identity against a backdrop of such hideously contradictory messages and forces.
0: It's fascinating, too, Sarah, about this movement that starts out very small. It's, it's a handful of people, really. And it becomes this nationwide phenomenon over the next few mm-hmm. years. And let's not forget, we're talking about the pre-internet era here. You, know, you, like, mm-hmm. you, couldn't, you couldn't blog or text about it. it yeah. Essentially, There was no Facebook group. Yes. It was a word-of-mouth <laughs> thing. The records were put out by small, independent labels. How did this message spread into this nationwide phenomenon?
4: Well, it spread in a couple of ways. One of the ways was just bands would go around and sell zines and pass the word along. Bikini Kill amassed a mailing list. Everywhere that they played, they would get people to write down their addresses, and then everybody on the mailing list got flyers that would have the tour dates for other bands. So the very you know carrier pigeon hmm. nature of a band that was constantly touring around the country And telling people about things was one extremely important way. Word also then spread through zines as, you know, people would make zines and then write the addresses of other zines. And so very frequently you would get your hands on one and then you would just write away for every single other zine that was reviewed in that issue. And that was a major way that people were and young people, people who weren't out of high school yet were sharing ideas and trying to elaborate, you know, a, a movement with one another over great distances. Now, the third thing that I'm going to say, it's, um, it's complex, but the mainstream media helped a lot. I found out about Riot from reading an article in Newsweek that many people felt never should have been written. Mm-hmm. There was so much mainstream media attention. And of course, an article in USA Today or an article in Spin is not going to get things as right as a fanzine, but it opens up a door. And I think that the crux, the core substance of Riot Girl, which was essentially a pair of words. Riot, we're all together and we're doing something. And girl, we're taking the word girl, which is, oh, you're such a girl. And girl, making mm-hmm. it fierce. That's Toby Vail's and um, Jen Smith's brilliance to recognize that that word pair was going to have such an impact.
2: For people who don't know, Sarah, tell us who they were.
4: Toby Vale was the drummer and sometimes singer of Bikini Kill, and she also wrote a tremendously marvelous zine titled Jigsaw. Mm -hmm. And it was in writing her zine that she came up with the idea to spell girl with three R's. Now, on the other side of the country, Jen Smith, who's now a marvelous artist and pickler and was in the band The Quails, but at the time she was a DC scene kid who was friends with the girls of Bratmobile and... um, When there were riots in Washington, D.C. over an instance of police brutality, Jen wrote a letter to someone in Brantmobile saying, oh, you know, what we need is a girl riot. And so then when everybody got over to D.C. that summer, that that phrase stuck with people because the pair was the pair of words was so evocative.
0: We're talking with Sarah Marcus, author of the book Girls to the Front, about the Riot Girl Punk Movement on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. We're gonna continue our discussion after a short break, and then Jim and I are gonna review new albums by The Cars and Fleet
3: Foxes. I tapped her on the shoulder and said, Do you have a bell? at me and smiled and said she did not know. Punk rock girl, give me a chance. Let's go slam dance to we'll a dress like Minnie Pearl cause you and me punk rock girl. We went to the Philly Pizza Company and ordered some hot tea. The waitress said, well no, we only have it iced. So we jumped up on the table and shouted an anarchy. And someone played a Beach Boys song on the jukebox. It was California dreaming so we started screaming on such a winter's day. She took me to her parents for a Sunday meal. Her father took one look at me and he began to squeal. rock girl, it makes no sense. Your dad rock
1: is rock the vice president. Jackson, the We're so cool, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're so cool, cool. We're so cool, yeah, yeah. Cosmo! Cosmo.
2: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis with my partner Greg Cott, and we've been talking about the history and legacy of the Riot Girl punk movement with Sarah Marcus, author of Girls to the Front. Riot Girl had its roots in the Northwest in the early 90s, and the term has come to mean something much broader when we talk about women and rock ever since. Musically, though, it, it was a very specific place and time and sound. Sarah, I think it would be great if we could have you play Rock Critic for a minute and point out the key musical touchstones for people not familiar with the original Riot Girl sounds. If you had to pick five definitive recordings, what would they be?
4: Okay, number one has to be Bikini Kill, the CD version of the first two records mm-hmm. on which all of their major anthems come out. a close second behind that would be the 7 Inches that they um, recorded with Joan Jett in 1993 with songs like New Radio and Demi Rep these are just brilliant songs and I think that they find the band at the height of its powers and also starting to embrace more of the ambiguity that we talked about before First records are very, you know, rights, rights. You do have rights. Let's yeah, get yeah. it? <laughs> it's a little much, but meant so much to people. But then, creatively, on um, "Turn the Song Down, Turn the Static Up," we start to have an embrace of multiplicity of complexity, recognizing that that can actually coexist and fruitfully must coexist with the sort of like political doctrinaire attitude that. Motivates the the Bikini Kill project at his heart. Turn that song down.
1: Turn the up. On, like
4: so those two recordings for Bratmobile, you know, Potty Mouth. The full-length record that they put out on Kill Rock Stars is just this like marvelous. I, I mean, the image that I get is like there's a punching bag like hanging from a wall, and every song is just like someone punches it from the left, from the right. The, the, the songs are about 40, 55 seconds long. so free and gleeful and snotty and obnoxious and beautiful. And it's it's perfect, like driving around in the summer music. For Heavens to Betsy, and Heavens to Betsy is, of course, the first band of Corin Tucker who would go on to form Slater Kinney. Mm -hmm. So it's really like the seeds of this fabulous voice and everything is really already there in these early recordings. They put out a seven-inch called These Monsters Are Real and it's got like three or four songs on it. And I just think that they're pop gems pierced through with blood-curdling screams mm-hmm. every so often when the pressure of expressing what they're trying to express just gets too much and the only thing you can do is just be like, Ah! <laughs> monsters
1: are real monsters I can be you
4: I asked for five records and I guess the fifth would be Huggy Bear taking the rough with the smooch. Huggy Bear was the British exemplars of Riot Girl. They were a co-ed punk band very influenced by situationism by Avital Ronell, hugely intelligent, literate and um, delinquency and excess and cacophony and free jazz and Dada are all mixed up in Huggy Bear's music. And I'm Taking the Rough with a Smooch, is this 10 inch record that just like blazes through all of it magnificently. That's the fifth recording that I will say. And these are the, you know, these four bands, Bikini Kill, Bratmobile, Heavens to Betsy and Huggy Bear are kind of the canonical Riot Girl bands, bands that considered, whose members considered themselves linked in with the phenomenon in some way, as opposed to, you know, there were many loud bands of strong women in the early 90s who never felt connected with Riot Girl, even though they would get lumped in, you know, L7, Babes in Toyland, Hole, they would very much get lumped in. And part of my... Um, project in writing the book was to reclaim a little bit of specificity because when you make Riot Girl mean loud girl bands of the early 90s, what you're losing is the grassroots element of it and the zines and the the fact of these like legions of teenage girls who were making feminism their own, and making their lives their own via feminism, that gets lost when you're like, oh, yeah, it was just this bunch of bands.
0: It dissipated in in the mid-'90s, disintegrated. I mean, Riot oh, Girl was kind of yeah, gone. I
4: was going to say dissipated might be a little kind.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it, it just <laughs> – it, it imploded. What's the legacy been, Sarah?
4: One lasting legacy is what I was talking about at the beginning of the interview, the fact that in underground DIY indie, whatever you want to call them, circles – Female input and creativity has become a given. It's no longer strange to see a woman playing music. In Mackay from Fugazi told me that, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, people would be like, oh, I went to see this show and there was a girl bassist. Like it was strange. At this point, it's strange if you go to a show and every band is all male. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, there's a recognition now that has carried forward from Riot Grrrl that there's also a marvelous kind of power that is quite moving in female creative community. You know, when a woman gets on stage and makes a ton of noise, she's breaking rules Mm. about how to be a woman. And that idea of freedom and that idea that the rules don't hold you it spreads to everybody in the room. Everybody feels that sense of possibility breaking open. And that has just happened more and more since Riot Girl and I think Riot Girl gets the credit.
0: We've been talking to Sarah Marcus, author of Girls to the Front, The True Story of the Riot Girl Revolution. Sarah, thank you for being our guest on Sound Opinions.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
2: Greg, we thought we would end our discussion of Riot Girl by picking some of our favorite songs associated with this movement. Sarah just gave us some of hers. I have to say, I don't know if you agree, that I think that the second wave of bands formed by some of the key players in the initial Riot Girl explosion, that second wave was more interesting and rewarding musically than the first. The first wave, Riot Girl bands were really important for the idea, the spirit, the statement. I like the music of the bands that they formed later better. Would you agree?
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think the the Riot Girls were intentionally more insular. They were speaking to a very specific audience at a very specific time, and it really wasn't meant to have a wider audience. But it certainly changed soon after, and the influence it had is still going on today. The number of great bands that have been inspired by Riot Girl, I think, are its real legacy. One of the most important out of the Pacific Northwest was Sleater Kinney, a band that had a run from 1994 through 2006. It had two of the key players from that original Riot Girl movement Corin Tucker, who was originally in the Riot Girl band Heavens to Betsy, and Carrie Brownstein, the guitar player who was in a queer core band called Excuse 17, sort of an ancillary movement to the Riot Girls. They teamed up for what was initially a side project, Form's leader Kinney, started writing some songs. By the time of their second album, which was called Call the Doctor in 1996, they were a full-fledged band getting nationwide attention. The drummer on that record was a woman named Laura McFarlane. She was later replaced by a monster drummer, Janet Weiss, and that trio of, of Weiss, Brownstein and Corin Tucker. I think was musically as sophisticated and as powerful as any rock band over the last decade. But I want to focus on that second record, Call the Doctor, from 1996, and the album that really sort of broke them to a much larger nationwide audience. The song from that record that really jumps out, I Want to Be Your Joey Ramone, it's a song about lust, it's a song about affirmation. I'm the queen of rock and roll, they say, at the same time they're invoking their heroes, Joey Ramone, Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth. They're saying, hey, I want to be a picture on your bedroom door just like that. It was an extremely powerful message to be putting out to young women, but I also think it resonated on the level of great rock and roll. It didn't matter whether you were a man or a woman, you could relate to this song because of its sheer power and the message that it was putting out, the affirming message it was putting out. Here's I Want to Be Your Joey Ramone from Sleater-Kinney on Sound Opinions. I want to be your Joey Ramone from Sleater Kinney, one of the best of the post-riot girl bands. Jim, what have you got for us?
2: Well, Greg, I think uh, Kathleen Hanna really was at the center of the whole Riot Grrrl explosion. And after her original band, Bikini Kill, came to an end, everybody wondered what would she do next. I think she zigged when everybody thought she was going to zag. Initially, she was going to do a solo project called Julie Ruin. And then with two bandmates, Joanna Fateman and Sadie Benning, it kind of morphed into La Tigra. A completely different sound, really, from Bikini Kill. electro clash. Taking the punk rock attitude and energy and bringing it to electronic dance music, maintaining the feminist politics and and the broader political messages, but but with a little more sense of humor. (laughs) It was a lot more joyful, a lot more fun, a lot more funny, and just absolutely explosive. I love the first album, I think it's a real classic, and Hot Topic I think is the song that really exemplifies what La Tigre was trying to do. This is a song that stops and pays homage to a long list of heroes, visual artists, poets, other musicians, most of them female, but not all of them. People like Sleater Kenny. okay, his name dropped. Angela Davis, Gertrude Stein, Billie Jean King, the Slits, Aretha Franklin, Joan Jett. It's just Kathleen having a really good time talking about all of her heroines and some of her heroes. And saying, don't you stop, please don't stop, we won't stop. In other words, this this energy, this movement, this vitality has to continue... Everybody do your part, don't give up, which I think is a pretty good place to end our discussion of Riot Girl. Here is La Tigra with Hot Topic on Sound Opinions. That is Hot Topic by La Tigra on Sound Opinions. We're going to get to new record reviews after a quick break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. But first, we want to remind you that you're always welcome to be a critic on our airwaves. To share your thoughts about anything in the world of music, call 888-859-1800.
0: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and you're listening to a little bit of new Cars music, a song called Blue Tip from the album Move Like This, the seventh studio album from this Boston band, but only their first since 1987. It's been a long hiatus here for the Cars. During that 10-year period, late 70s to late 80s, uh, they had a string of pop singles, just what I needed. Drive, my best friend's girl. That 1978 Cars debut album still considered one of the signposts of the new wave era. Rick Ocasek, the singer and songwriter in the band, has also had a pretty prolific career as a producer, working with artists such as Weezer, No Doubt, Guided by Voices, Suicide, Bad Brains, etc. And now the band is back together again. At least the four surviving members are. That would be Ocasek. Guitarist Elliot Easton, keyboardist Greg Hawks, and drummer David Robinson. Bassist Ben Orr died in the year 2000. They're back with Move Like This. We're going to review it in a second, but let's play a track from it first. It's called Sad Song on Sound Opinions.
2: That was Sad Song by the Cars from their new album, Move Like This. On Sound Opinions, Greg, it's not a particularly sad tune. It's got a cheerful beat and a little tune there. Mm -hmm. It is, however, sad in that it is a mere echo of what was once great about the Cars. This is not one of the cornerstone, important, groundbreaking bands in rock history. They were synthesis, and they did it very well. They took avant-garde ideas percolating in the punk and early New Wave days from people like uh, Roxy Music and Pear Ubu. And they paired them with a wonderful, tuneful sensibility that suddenly made New Wave safe for American classic rock radio. You know what I mean? And they did it really, really well. There was musical invention there, but there were pop smarts aplenty. You know, Ocasek, a little of him goes a long way. He ain't no Brian Ferry. His voice isn't that great. I think Ben Orr was really important in balancing him out. Still, that could be forgiven if the cars came back and did something new, but they're not. The synthesizer sounds are locked into 1978-79. The Elliott Easton guitar sounds, what what used to sound revolutionary, having a little bit of a heavy metal tasty lick come into the new wave, now just sounds old and tired. Ocasek sounds old and tired. There are no great songs here. It's all old and tired. Sad song indeed, I've got to say, and I'm a Cars fan This is a trash it record on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale.
0: Well, I don't think they're doing anything new, but it's intentional. I think the music was meant to be a little bit forward-looking. I give them a little bit more credit for being innovative than you do, Jim. Uh, They brought some of these ideas from the underground into the mainstream, but they did it in a very intelligent and melodic way. You know, I always think of Ocasek as kind of a vocalist who should be reading William Gibson novels aloud rather than (laughs) actually singing in a rock band. And I mean that as a compliment. They, They sort of had this android kind of vibe going on in the music that I think is actually very 21st century. Sounds very much of the moment. But the one thing that the Cars were always good at was singles. They weren't a very good album band. Outside of that debut, I would argue they never made a really great beginning to end album. And that streak continues with Move like this. The up-tempo melodic stuff works really well. As a ballad band, yeah, not so much. But- You're right, that's where Ben Orr was missed because he was the guy that would sing the romantic ballads and and they would work back in the day. They don't have that element now, but there's still enough elements here that I think are going to please old-time Cars fans. I'm going to give it a burn-it.
1: I was raised up believing I was somehow unique Like a snowflake Distinct among snowflakes Unique in each way you can see And now after some thinking I'd say I'd rather be A functioning cog in some great machinery Serving something beyond me But I don't
2: listening to a little bit of a song called Helplessness Blues, which happens to be the title track from the second album by the Seattle-based folk rock quintet Fleet Foxes. Greg, you and I both were big fans of the band's 2008 self-titled debut. That came on the heels of a really exciting EP called Sun Giant, and that came on the heels of the band introducing themselves to the world via MySpace. Not rewriting the book on folk rock you know there was a lot of crosby stills nash and young there was a lot of kind of post pet sounds beach boys in what they were doing but man especially when you saw the band live to have five voices come together the way those guys could you and i both have told the story of being at the pitchfork music festival giant you know the sun's out giant crowd middle of a big field and these guys come out and they just sing acapella, and you could hear a pin drop. Now it comes time for the second album. I gather there was quite a bit of angst in the making of this. They recorded one version as sort of a home recording, scrapped it, went on. The leader of the band, Robin Pecknold, has said that he wanted this record to follow in the footsteps of Van Morrison's Astral Weeks, which is only one of the best rock albums ever made. Nothing like setting your sights high. Have Fleet Foxes measured up to that point? Let's decide in a minute after we play a track from this new album, Helplessness Blues. This is a ballad called Lorelei by Fleet Foxes on Sound Opinions.
0: That's Lorelei from the second Fleet Foxes album, Helplessness Blues on Sound Opinions. Jim, I, like you, was a fan of that 2008 debut album, and in fact, I loved it. Very immediate album for me uh, in terms of those melodies just being right up front this album, I'll admit, it took me a little longer to get into. The melodies weren't quite as immediate. There was a lot more going on in the songs, a lot more to get into, a lot more counterpoint melodies, a lot more in the arrangements, a lot more texture in the music. He was piling on these sounds, everything from woodwinds to Tibetan singing balls to, uh, you know, traditional guitar, drums, and bass. Those harmonies are still there. But one thing I did notice about this record from the start was, you know, he's a little bit more upfront and he's a lot more direct in his lyrics. Whereas the previous album there was a lot of this nature imagery, you didn't really quite realize how this was affecting him personally. As you said, this record has a much more personal and turbulent undercurrent to it. There's a lot of anxiety here. He's trying to figure out, where do I fit in this world and how can I be a more selfless person?
1: After. All is said and done I feel the same
0: That's an extraordinary message to be putting out at this time. It's very zen, it's very 60s, very hippie, but I think he means it in all sincerity, and it's kind of beautiful in in a way. You know, here's a record that is embracing modesty. So there's all this beauty, and at the same time, there's this incredible sense of anxiety underneath it all. You know, at the end of the day, this record won me over. It is a beautiful record, and I'm going to give it a buy it.
2: Yeah, it's a buy-it record for sure, Greg. I've said it a couple times in recent months. This is this is a banner year, it seems to me, for records that are slow growers, mm-hmm. that reward repeated listenings. You're right. It, it, there's a weird kind of cosmic, self-effacing, unpretentiousness here. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the Grim Reaper's knocking on the door, yeah. but he just wants to be a better man, and he wants to sing in harmony. If there's a resemblance to Astral Weeks, it's not in the uh, grand philosophizing. It's in the kind of sonic cohesiveness, and, and the... The way that the Fleet Foxes can do something that is very difficult, layering four- and five-part vocal harmonies and make it sound absolutely effortless, like a couple of guys just sitting on the back porch Mm. doing it. Love this record. A double buy it. What do we have on the show next week?
0: Next week, Jim, we have an in-studio visit from one of
2: our favorite bands from northern Minnesota, the Great Low. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Our intern, Nick Myers, if he was one of the original Riot Girl bands, he'd be Bikini Kill. Our producer, Robin Lynn, she would be Bratmobile. Our other producer, Jason Saldana, he would be Huggy Bear. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia, he'd be Heavens to Betsy. On sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline 888
1: 859 1800.
3: New messages. Hi,
1: my name is Michael that, and I'm from the occasionally lovely Schenectady, New York. My comment is regarding the Beastie Boys new album, and the music of the Beastie Boys means a lot to me. junior high school and high school in the mid to late 80s, Ill Communication, Paul's Boutique played a big part in that. But I listened to the Beastie Boys new album because more from a nostalgic standpoint, since 1992's release of Check Your Head, the Beastie Boys have essentially lived in a creative vacuum. Each subsequent album could be named Check Your Head Part 1, Check Your Head Part 2, Check Your Head Part 3, all the way up to Check Your Head Part 6. Great music, great nostalgia, but just each album sounds more or less the same. I appreciate you letting me sound off and uh, share my opinion. Thank you. Mike, check. Like a Nexus 6, home to, foos, handheld, but start to you need the ear is like a scientist with shoes and beakers. Have MCs up on my house it's some brush. But you rappers, we going out, go with dirt. pass so me the sword. I start swing, just randomly chopping on a crazy ass. I'm back with the bank boogie. Oogie Oogie. Strong
2: every letter 23
1: like sugar. Oh my god, just look at me. Grandpa been rapping since 183. I'm
3: super sad. Hey Jim and Greg, this is Rebecca from Chicago. Just wanted to call and let you know that I totally enjoyed your show with Titus Andronicus. They were great, and it especially made my day when they referenced my favorite band, Sleater Kenny, and that really brought a smile to my face. Thanks again. Keep up the good work.
1: Because to now, can me when the well of human hatred is shallow and dry
0: Hi, Jim and Greg. It's Vaughn calling from Pennsylvania. I love the show. I'm very much enjoying the Dylan episodes, and I just finished listening to the last one about him going electric. And I was really hoping you guys would play something from that 1966 Royal Albert Hall concert. I just think that that live recording is one of the most perfect documents of rock and roll. That, like a Rolling Stone, that he ends the concert with after the guy in the crowd yells out Judas. He says, I don't believe you.
3: I don't believe you.
0: It is just perfect. The drummer is like a righteous machine gun just popping behind him.
2: It's so fantastic. Anyway, keep up the great work. I'm really enjoying it. Look forward to the next one.
1: Hey, this is Jeff from Virginia. Uh, I just got finished listening to your Dylan Goes Electric show, and I wanted to comment on something that
0: suddenly struck me. I've listened to this period a million times. Like most people, it is my favorite Dylan out there. But I noticed for the first time just how much during this period that any time he blows his harmonica, just how much it sounds like a million middle fingers leaving his mouth. It sounds like a glorious annoyance to you on the loop.
1: Anyway, take care. See y'all later.
2: No more messages. To give us your opinions on sound opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.